This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. Okay, so I'm sitting here and I am talking to Troy Pottinger and... If you don't know who he is, I'm going to let him introduce himself. So, Troy, why don't you go ahead, man? Hey, how's it going, Luke? Uh, good to be on your show. And uh, I'm just uh, I'm way out west out here in the northwest. Uh, my name's Troy Pottinger. I grew up in northern Idaho. And I'm a whitetail fanatic. <laughs> I, I love to hunt. I love to hunt everything we get to hunt out west, elk, deer, bear. But uh, by far... My favorite thing to hunt in the world is a whitetail buck, and I love to bow hunt. Um, I am, I just, I hit, the, I hit the half century mark this year, so I'm 50 this year. And I've been hunting, been hunting whitetails, and I've been bow hunting since I was a teenager. Um, you know, and then I, I grew up in a small town in northern Idaho. My dad was a logger. My mom was a school teacher. And my dad was a very avid elk and mule deer hunter. So even as a little tiny guy, I grew up on horseback. My grandfather had a pack string. So we used to go into the backcountry and hunt elk muleys in the backcountry, like ride a horse 20 miles in and stay for a week and did all that stuff. So I was always hunting. And when I hit about 11 years old, I kind of fell in love with the whitetails and and it took a little different direction from the rest of my family. They were more into elk and mule deer. And I just I just fell in love with the whitetails. And, and I've been hunting them ever since. So, yeah, that's kind of my background. I'm a teacher by trade. Uh, I've been teaching. This is my 25th year. And I teach in the uh, 
northern Idaho panhandle. At a, I teach at River City Middle School over in Pulse Falls, Idaho, right next to Coeur d'Alene, Spokane, Washington area. And uh, I also have owned my own logging business. I've logged in the summers for the last 30 some years. So I didn't get too far away from what my parents did as teachers and loggers. <laughs> so with the, with the logging business, is it like a uh, lumber logging or is it like firewood timber type? Oh, it's, it's regular timber. Uh, you know, I, my dad was a logger, so I, I decided when I got my college degree that I needed something to do in the summers to, I, I'm one of those guys I don't really like to sit around. So I've always wanted to own my own business. So yeah, I actually fall the trees. I, I log for private landowners, 10 acre pieces up to I've logged or I've worked on thousand acre pieces. And, you know, straight up logger, uh, fall trees with a chainsaw, skid them with my bulldozer, deck them up. And then I hire a self-loading logging truck to come in and haul them to the mill. So, yeah, I'm just a, a one-man logging show by myself. And I've done that for years. And just a couple years ago, I decided to back out of it a little bit just because it is dangerous. And I'm raising two boys right now. One's going to be a senior in high school. The other was a freshman in college right now. And... You know, I went a lot of years without ever having an accident or anything. So I kind of backed out of it the last couple of years. So I also do some farming now. I like running heavy equipment. And then, of course, I'm always running around in the woods, too, uh, so that I can scout and chase these big whitetails that live out here on the uh, huge public lands that I hunt. So I'm kind of curious. I mean, the, the, I bet you the logging, as far as the logging aspect of it, probably afforded you a few hunting opportunities along the way as well, didn't it? Yeah. You know, every now and then I'll, I'll run into a, a landowner that may offer. Um, so, but usually the, usually the places that I'm logging and I need to add this in too. I log people's property for them, but I also will build food plots for them, set it up for elk, deer, whatever they want. So it's more than just logging. Um, I like the big public land more so than the smaller parcels. And I have so much public land out here that I'm a little different than most people in the country. I don't like fences. I don't like property lines. If I want to, I'll get on one buck. And if that's the buck I want to kill, sometimes I have to monitor him over a five mile area to get on him. So, so for me, I learned at a young age that, I wasn't real interested in getting to a property line and not being able to cross over into somebody else's property and not be able to hunt that deer. So I've kind of always gravitated towards the big national forest service land because, you know, I'm hunting on million acre pieces. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's a nice chunk of property. I wish, yeah. uh, I wish we had some of that around here. So I'm kind of curious. I, I know, I know you, uh, run a lot of cameras and stuff like that. So when you're doing it, is there, I mean, certain things you're focusing on with these cameras or, um, just kind of high travel routes. What, what's your strategy? And do you run like, you know, I, I talked to one guy that he runs about a hundred cameras a year and, uh, I don't even think my wife would let me spend my, spend that much money on batteries, but what's, <laughs> what's your, uh, what's your strategy for that? Well, for the listeners, you know, I'm hunting huge country. And not only is my country 
huge. The elevation, some of the stuff I'm hunting whitetails in is 5,000 feet elevation. And some of the stuff I'm hunting whitetails in and finding them in is 20 to 30 miles off of any highway. So 20, 30 miles of dirt to even get to where I want to hunt. Um, so with the camera strategy for me, I'm on a grand scale. I hunt a very low deer density population, rugged country. Uh, if you want to picture this, a, literally just a sea of timber for hundreds of miles in some places that's covered, you know, that literally covers the mountains. So I'm not hunting a lot of people, I think, that think of the West, that haven't been out West, see the images and the, the TV of being out West and wide open spaces. That's not, that's really not the, what it's like where I hunt. I hunt, imagine big mountains that are completely covered in trees. This is logging country up here, timber country. Uh, truthfully, I don't even use binoculars. And it's because of how thick it is in the area where I live. So my trail cameras are extremely important eyes for me because I can't, I really, it's useless to try to glass the habitat that I'm hunting in. So I'll lay out, yeah, I run close to a hundred cameras myself, but that's over three states. I live up in the panhandle of Idaho. So I'm really close to Montana and I'm really close to Washington, Eastern Washington. So I like to run, I like to lay out my trail cameras like a trapper would lay out his trap line. And I prospect areas with my trail cameras and I lay them out on what I prefer for elevation, terrain-based features. We can get into that in detail in a little while. But essentially I lay out great big trail camera trap lines to locate the specific buck that I want to hunt. So um, you're... How, how do you end up targeting that, that specific buck, though? Is that through all trail camera info, then? Or are you kind of just a general idea from previous history or seeing him or something like that? Well, to, to find the kind of buck I want to hunt, I have, a, I have an age class and a caliber of deer I want to hunt. I mean, I've killed 30-plus Pope and Young Whitetails over the years. Um, I think I'm almost to 40. Um, in the mountains, the public land of Idaho, Washington, and Montana. So when I say a specific buck, 10 years ago, if you'd asked me, my kind of where my standards were probably even a little different than they are now. I mean, I'm pretty much after five plus year old bucks, you know, that are, I'm always trying and this may come across. I don't know how it's going to come across, but I'm always <laughs> looking for, I'm always looking, I'll just be, I'll just be honest. I'm always looking for a state record caliber whitetail. That's what I'm looking for. So uh, I'm putting out an extensive amount of miles, effort, prospects, and I base it all off of my e-scouting nowadays and my maps. Growing up, I didn't have any of that, and I learned it all on foot. So I learned it the hard way and really got the habitat, the elevation, the terrain features that I look for, for whitetails, where they like to live, where they don't like to live, where they like to be safe, where they don't, where they don't feel safe. I had all, I kind of had all that figured out in about the first 15 years of doing this in my teens and twenties and early thirties. And then all this help came along with trail cameras and unbelievably easy e-scouting maps that come out and now it just makes it nicer and it's just so much more i would say i'm just so much more efficient now 
I can just get on a map anywhere in the Northwest or anywhere in the country for that matter. And I feel like if I'm on a map and I have the top of the map of the area, I'm going to get on a big buck. And like I said, we can get into more detail what I'm looking for topographically and elevation wise and as far as food sources go. Yeah, I'd like to. Before we do that, though, so your your cameras are, I mean, are you going in and are you checking the the memory cards or are you using uh, like a cell camera at this point? How are you doing it so you're not, uh, you know, leaving leaving your scent in there to where he's not going to come back through for a week or something, you know? How are you doing it to not be obtrusive? Well, the first thing I'll say is I probably hunt the most skittish whitetails you'll see because my deer get hunted by mountain lions, wolves, and grizzly bears weekly. So you're probably not going to find a deer much more careful than mine. So talking about being obtrusive, I, I can't, you know, I really don't like to bother my deer. I kind of have a one month rule and I have so much ground that I cover. I cycle through month by month and only hit a camera once a month. And I leave them out year round. Um, but I have so many cameras and so much ground that I cover that you know, I'm 20 to 25,000 miles, sometimes 30,000 miles a year on my truck, just just on my white tip, <laughs> just that's, on my deer. That's an investment there, man. Yeah, that's, and it's, uh, a ton, yeah. it's a ton of fuel. It's a ton of time. You know, people probably, or there, there's probably that conception too. Well, how do you do that and work and do all these jobs? Well, when I log, I, I, I start at four in the morning and I get done at noon. Yeah. And I go do my whitetail stuff till eight or nine o'clock at night. And that's how I did it for years. So I was putting in 15, 16, 17 hour days and loving it. I just, I thrive on that stuff. I, I like to work and I love to find big deer and there's not a ton of them in this country, but we have great genetics if a buck can get old and we, we do suffer from attrition from predators and we have incredibly rough winters here. My big bucks usually get forced out of their high elevation hideouts in January and they'll migrate 10 miles away just to survive. Wow. And then they move back in April every year. I mean, that's like our deer. I, I, they barely, I bet you maybe cover a square mile pretty much in their whole life other than maybe the rut your deer are traveling 10 miles huh just to live just to survive a winter yes and my bucks because i have trail cameras you know because i have so many trail cameras nowadays and laid out in areas i can keep track of a, a, our bucks are real nomadic we have anytime you hunt in huge country with a lot of elevation where bucks have to climb up over mountain saddles and you know, they'll climb up 2,000 feet in elevation and go through a saddle and drop down 2,000 feet. And, you know, I've got a few friends that I trust pretty closely. We'll share some camera pictures. And we've had we've had a whitetail buck on camera at one of my stands. And 24 hours later, he's done almost a 10-mile circle in the rut in one day. <laughs> wow. That's pretty <laughs> It's simple science. The doe family groups are spread way out. There's not a lot of does. And if a big buck wants to go check on, say, 20 different does, he might have to put a 10-mile day in. And it's just that simple. Wow. So it's pretty incredible. It's kind of a whole different – it's a whole different uh, whitetail hunting experience out here. How big are the body compared to, a, you know, like a Midwest whitetail? 
I'm sure compared to a Texas whitetail or something like that, where they're just naturally smaller bodied. I mean, are are they big bodied deer out there? Yeah. Um, my deer look a lot like Canadian deer. I'm high elevation deer. They get cold. We hunt in a lot of sub-zero days all day long. Uh, the, the deer that we hunt have evolved into really big body deer. Most of the bucks that I kill, and I weighed them for years. Now I'm killing deer so deep in, I'm boning them out and packing them out in one trip, which is a heavy pack, but no, <laughs> no bones, of course. Can't pack them with the bones out in one pack. They're too heavy. But to answer your question, in my younger days, I always weighed them. And even that nice three and a half, four and a half year olds in my younger days were always dressing around about 200 pounds. The big deer that I'm targeting in the last 20 years, the five, six, seven year old bucks, when I hunt them in the high country, and when I mean high country, I'm in mountains that go up six, 7,000 feet, maybe 8,000. Uh, the deer usually stay around that 5,000 mark max, maybe six. Those big deer can get up to 250, 300 pounds at their biggest live weight. That's a live weight. And I've killed a couple that have weighed 260, 275 dressed. You know, kind of like those big Maine deer you hear about. Or yeah. We're just, we're a northern region. You know, we're cold. We're northern. The genetics that survive in the high country are big bodies, 100%. And they, they're, they're a lot like Canadian deer. As a matter of fact, some of my spots are really close to Canada. I'm looking at Canada from some of my tree stands. Wow. That's, <laughs> that's pretty close. Yeah. A guy I know, uh, he grew up in Maine and he was telling me, he goes, you guys think you got big deer around here. They're not in Illinois. They're, they're not as big. I mean, he goes, we may go three, four years without ever seeing a deer, but when one of your buddies gets one and gets one and it's hanging in the garage, he said, your Illinois whitetails that are so big look tiny compared to them. So, yeah, I could I could kind of understand where you're coming from with the whole Canadian deer thing right there with the with the border. I've got, you know? the, same, I've got the same DNA, and that's what I target. I target the big northern bucks. Uh, I've hunted all over, meaning Iowa, Ohio, North Dakota, Oklahoma. I mean, man, I've I've hunted in places in the Midwest, that, and I've hunted Edmonton, Bozone. Um, hunted places with big body deer, but when I get out in the Midwest, big body deer are 100%, but they're fat. <laughs> they're corn, corn fed. They're corn fed, big fat, big old boys. You know, they're horses. You get out here in the mountains and I'll send you some, if you, even if you go back and look at some of my pictures of my bucks, our bucks out here, because they climb so much and they run around up and down steep, I'm talking steep ass mountains. Uh, and they run around them like a mountain goat covered with timber. I mean, get, you know, they're running through the trees on really steep faces. So our bucks out here that are 250, 275, the real big ones, maybe 300 max, they're buff. They're ripped. They're just shredded in muscle and they're big. And then it's because of the habitat they live in and the environment that they cruise around in. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. That's uh kind of, totally different aspect you could probably call them actually uh organic meat <laughs> from up there then i know ours are fed a bunch of corn <laughs> yeah i was just gonna say mine aren't eating genetically modified corn yeah yeah a lot of people around here still claim it is but i, I don't <laughs> even think i think i heard steve Rinella or somebody talk about it and they're like i don't think you could find a single duck 
unless you got it from like the hatching grounds that you could call an organic duck breast because it's it's stopped and grazed in every cornfield from you know from from mexico to canada so yeah and being a health teacher, trust me, I have a lot of background in that field, too. Food systems and where food comes from. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm definitely eating organic whitetail out here. Nice. That's good. So let's talk about the terrain and what you're, what you're looking for. How, what kind of features are you picking out? I mean, are you kind of, are you looking for saddles and benches? Or are you looking for clearings, uh, like, you know, old growth, uh, clear cut timber, st- something like that? What, what, what are you kind of going after? Well, my, my country is hunted have more heavily than you would imagine um, because it is public and because we have so much road access due to all the logging country and all the forest service ground. So there's roads everywhere. Um, when I look for features, I look for features that are away from a road. Um, I like great big long ridges that extend way out away from roads and you kind of get out into some privacy as far as where people are willing to walk. Um, I'm one of those guys that doesn't mind at all diving down off of a mountain. I do not mind if I have to pack a whitetail buck up out of a hole, you know, a hole, so to speak, but maybe off a big ridge or something. And yeah, I look for those places that, that my whitetails prefer The number one factor, though, is always heavy security cover. The deer that I hunt out here will not walk out in the open meadows and open timber cuts in the daylight. Not the old guys. Young bucks, young does, absolutely. Uh, My big deer hold tight to big cover, which is the big timber. So I tend to hunt off of any of the big clear cuts. When I was younger, I hunted closer to the clear cuts, and you can – and a clear cut can be 20, 30, 40, 50 years old. A clear cut is a, a wonderful place for an animal to eat out in the Pacific Northwest. And then as, as they grow up and mature, the clear cuts turn into not only a great place to eat, but all of our clear cuts are replanted with timber and it's thick. So they also turn into unbelievable bedding areas once they're, you know, three or four, five decades old. Yeah. Um, a lot of the places I hunt are as far as habitat and terrain goes or some type of kind of a hideout or a getaway, a big bench or a big old long ridge that is close enough for a buck to use a good food source, say out in an old clear cut or in a newer clear cut, but far enough away to where he feels safe from any pressure. And he'll usually always be up in elevation because he's using the thermals all day to stay alive. Yeah. So when you're, when you're hunting these, these, uh, clear cuts is, is the Tim, like the canopy of the timber timber, is it, uh, I mean, is it real high? Uh, what kind of canopy do you have out there that, you know, are you getting up, uh, you know, 20, 30 feet in the tree, like some guys, or are you hunting like 12 foot? I hunt, I hunt 12 foot when I'm in Oklahoma, 15 feet. <laughs> yeah. When I hunt the mountains out here, I'm usually about 25 to 30. Okay. And and I have to because of the way the wind. I don't know if you've ever been out in the mountains. The wind out here constantly mixes with prevailing winds, constantly mix with thermals. Yeah. And you literally have to go in and find 
wind edges or wind barriers that are created by mountain terrain or, you know, a lot of times I'll set my, you know, and I'm very meticulous and a perfectionist when it comes to where my stand is going to go to hunt a specific deer once I get him on camera. We can talk about finding those deer too later as far as what I use. I'm really, I really use scrapes, but we can get into that later. Yeah. But as far as talking about the height of a tree stand, I've hunted all over the country and I've found that out west out here where I hunt, I usually have to be fairly high, 25 feet at least, to escape all the issues you deal with down at 15 feet with, with the problems with the wind. And of course, I set my stands up where I, I'll have a bluff behind me or a big ravine or a nasty d- bunch of deadfall where it steers the deer around me on purpose, you know, to where they're not coming in on, on a bad wind for me. So I take all that into consideration, but yeah, I do hunt high out here out West. That's kind of why I asked you that. Cause I was thinking about the thermals and whether or not that would play into it or that's yeah, I get it. And I like to kill stuff close. You know, I don't take 40 yard shots at whitetails. I like to kill them at 10, 15 yards, 20 yards max. I think my longest was like 28. That yeah. was the longest you know, shot I've ever taken. Yeah. On, I, on love, a deer. I love those. Sla- you know, I was, I've said it for years. I love those slam dunk shots. They're just, I usually get one chance at a giant whitetail out here, a five, six, seven year old. He's so sharp. I'll usually get one chance and I got to kill him. And if I don't kill him on that one chance and I screw it up, I usually don't see him at that spot the rest of the season. So I have to move on him if I screw it up. How often do you end up having to go to a new spot? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I do. I kind of play the game and it's, and we should probably talk about it a little bit because it's integral to how I kill these deer is I hunt great big community scrapes. So I actually have some incredible stands that produce year after year. Um, we can get into that detail later. How often do I have to move? If I screw up one of those spots on a specific deer, yeah, the other deer will still come through. The other bucks will, the ones I'm not interested in. But I'll uh, I'll grab my lightweight setup, and, yeah, I will literally go try to get on that deer half a mile or a mile away where in between where I have him somewhere else on a camera. So I do play that game, too, if I need to. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when, when you're, uh, when you're, when you're hunting those scrapes, let's, let's get into that. Um, are are you, I mean, are some of them long-term scrapes that you've identified X amount of years ago and the deer are continually using them, even like the next generation of deer or how's that working out? Okay. So there's, there's about four or five different types of scrapes out in the woods and I don't pay attention to any of them other than the giant hub community scrapes, meaning a lot of my scrapes have been used for five decades, three, three decades. And the only way you can tell if you run into one of those out here is you got to know what you're looking at, which is it'll have multiple licking branches that are torn and tattered and worn and just beat to hell. And you can see decades of use on them. I mean, they're just, they've been there forever. I've found I've found licking branches that are as big around as your finger that have been chewed on for so many years that you can just tell the the deer have probably taken, I don't know, 10 inches off of, off of it and it's big around as your thumb, <laughs> you know? 
And then most of the time when I find a great scrape that all the deer in the, and then when I say general area, just five, six, 10 mile circle, will know where it's at. And it's because our deer do have to travel a lot to check on each other. Uh, the licking branches will be multiple. There'll be seven, eight, nine, 10, 15 hanging licking branches sometimes. Really? And the scrape will be usually on the ground when I find a great one that's been there forever. Not only will it be show evidence of being scraped out, even in the spring, it'll be deep. Like it'll be four or five inches deep in the ground because they've scraped in it for so many years. And a lot of times it'll be as big as a car hood or bigger. Really? So I'm looking for all of those signs and then I get excited about a scrape. Any other scrape I see on a logging road, on the edge of a meadow and on the edge of a, yeah, you know, I do some hunting on mountains that butt up against farmland too. And I'm not talking about those deer right now, but I do hunt some of those deer. I never bother with anything on an open edge or an, out in an open field or in an open meadow. I don't touch anything on a field edge because my big bucks won't use them in the daylight because they won't expose themselves. They're, they know better or they'll be dead. Yeah. I had a buck a long time ago on some private land that I grew up hunting and, uh, I watched him for about two, two years, I think. And it was always at dusk. I tried to position myself every spot I could on the property that I could hunt. And no matter what, he was holed up on a little oasis on some farm ground that I absolutely did not have permission to hunt. And I watched him every evening, 12 other deer would pass me before he'd ever step out of the timber and step into that field and start walking my way every time. (laughs) <laughs> no i get it and just think of that on a grand scale out here on a you know a massive scale of country yeah that, with low you know with low deer densities a lot of times at my and i build I'll t- we can talk about that too i build mock community scrapes too that's pretty intriguing uh what it gets the old bucks to do that find them uh, but back to an existing one that i overmark i overmark all my scrapes with buck fever synthetics I introduce a new buck to that scrape. My whole goal, and I've been and I've been very successful with it over the years, is I get those big deer out here where I hunt to hunt me. They come looking for me because they want to know who this new dude is over marking their scrape. So let's talk about that then. Are you you're probably using synthetics, right? Yeah, buck fever synthetics. And, Twenty-five and- years. What's, what's the purpose behind that? Let's get into that because that's, okay. that's kind of interesting. Well, I'm a kinesiologist and a biologist, so here we go. <laughs> that's what my degree's in. So when I first started hunting whitetails as a kid, before I even went off to college and was interested in studying that stuff, the whitetails, when I was shed hunting in the spring, I would find, I found a lot of sheds growing up. I found, I have literally found thousands total over all my years. And yeah, I'm, I'm 50 years old. So that's a lot of years, but I found a lot. But when I was young, I always tried to pay really close attention because I had to teach myself how to hunt whitetails. Again, my dad was a mule deer elk guy. My dad actually tragically got killed when I was 17. So I didn't have him after that. Um, and I had to teach myself. So I, I really kind of immersed myself into trying to figure out whitetails by myself because <laughs> I wanted to kill big white tails that I couldn't when I was young. And I always was, I was always enamored at how they could get away from me. And I might get a 
quick glimpse of one in the woods when I was out hunting as a teenager and, you know, and it was gone. So anyway, all that to say, shed hunting in the springtime, I would come across these giant scrapes every now and then because I would walk so much looking for antlers. I mean, I'd spend 12, 15 hours a day walking, just looking for antlers. And I'd come across these unbelievable scrapes. And back then I didn't really know what I was looking at. But the one thing that I did notice was that they always had deer tracks in them in the spring. And I was, you know, I always thought when I was young that deer made scrapes only in the fall. Well, I'd come across yeah. these scrapes. I'd come across these scrapes in the spring, and they always had tracks in. Them. Well, I started putting, you know, one and one together, and it added up to well, they're they're coming to these scrapes even in the spring and hitting the licking branch over it. And the reason I knew they hit licking branches when I was young is we lived on a fifty-acre little ranch that butted up against a mountain, and luckily I had an awesome scrape on the back of our property that I could see with you know, the binoculars easy uh, from our ranch house. And I used to watch deer even when I was 10 or 11 years old, hit that, hit those licking branches in the spring and the summer. So I'd see that behavior. And then I started putting it together up in the mountains and thought these deer are using these to communicate year round, you know, to, to, to know who's around, who made it through the winter, who moved back in after migration and all that. So it always really fascinated me. Uh, I, I, you know, I really read a lot of books as a teenager and an early age college kid about whitetail biology, and it all made sense then. So I just started applying that science of deer using scrapes year round, not the dirt. They use the licking branch year round to communicate. So I just started applying that as you, as a, in my twenties to that's where I'm going to set up and hunt deer. And Idaho's a no bait state. You can't put feet out. It's illegal. So I was hunting whitetail deer over these scrapes and I, you know, in my early twenties and started seeing some pretty nice bucks and killing some pretty nice deer. And it just blossomed from there. And of course I stayed really up on the biology of whitetails. And then as soon as trail cameras came out in the early two thousands, I started capturing it all on video and, or excuse me, on picture. And that really made me realize that I didn't even realize how much they use them. So it's just a snowball from there. You know, now I run 30 second video on every scrape I have. So when, uh, when you were first running cameras, I remember my buddy, his dad used to run cameras and they were the old film cameras and, uh, 35 millimeter. He, yeah. He was always getting pictures developed all the time of all these big deer. Yeah. Yeah. That's how old I am, but that's how old I am. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Yeah. It's, it's times have definitely changed, but it, uh, it taught me so much though, you know, to figure it out out there by looking at the, you know, I literally was looking at those scrape shed hunt and getting it figured out back when I was a teenager. Yeah. So just running in the springtime. Yeah. Checking it all out and figuring out where they're still traveling. Yeah. How, how does that, picking up antler. you know, I, I'd find the buck I wanted to hunt the next year, even when I was in my late teens. So like you were saying, though, I mean, they stay within a pretty relative, the, the, the elevation band is pretty relative. They don't move too much out of that. I mean, you know, a couple thousand feet here or there, but like as far as the area, that's kind of where they stick. Um, we'll have deer from, let's just paint this picture. We'll have whitetail deer from 2,000 feet roughly up to 5,000, maybe six. A few of the old hermit bucks will live really high because they like the thermal 
and they're, they're le- they get left alone. Mm-hmm. But, but what we see out, what I see out here is doe family groups pretty much stay put in about a one to two mile area their whole life. The big whitetail bucks that want to go breed and want to find more than one doe family group, which one doe family group consists of a doe and her fawns or a fawn. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if he wants to go breed more than one doe, it's not like he's in the Midwest or in farm country where he can literally pick from, like you said, you had that buck with what, 12 other deer? Yeah. 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 So what my bucks end up doing is they run on horizontal lines around the elevations of the mountains intersecting with where the doe family groups spend their time going vertically up and down. Gotcha. And they check those big scrapes. Yeah. And the does really cover those scrapes, meaning they address them almost daily. And I have video of that for years now of where my local doe family group at each scrape, sometimes I'll have two, even like an amazing setup for me is two or three doe family groups at one community scrape. And that will usually get me five to six, seven, eight bucks total that will check that community scrape and that big drainage. And, so, and, and a drainage, when I say the word drainage, you're talking a five to 10 mile area. Right. Yeah. So pretty big area if you drew a circle on a map. And every now and then I really get into a rocking spot where the bucks really feel safe and they can hide out. And I have some, I have a scrape and I'll get three or four mature, but like a great, a great spot for me would be two or three bucks, four and a half years and older, which isn't too bad on public land. No, not at all. But they're not, but they're not living right there, there every day. So I end up moving closer to my bucks and a lot of times i'll build a community scrape then that looks just like the one they've been using for years i'll kind of surprise them with it when they find it and they literally act on film like they can't believe they've been missing that all that years all those years right (laughs) yeah so let's go back to that then when you're creating these uh using a stick you're using a rake how how are you going about it? And are you spraying anything in the ground as far as like urine? Oh yeah, you so we'll are. talk. Yeah, buck fever synthetics. You know, huge plug to them because I've been using their product forever, and it's incredible. Literally for over twenty years. Where are they based um, out of? Like Michigan or something? Michigan, yeah. And I was looking for a synthetic urine way back in the nineties that I could use because my biology background, it was real simple. Every time you buy a protein based natural urine, if it heats up at all, it rots and it stinks. And I was trying to use some of those old bottled urines when I was, I'll call myself a kid back then. (laughs) And you open up the bottle and it smells like an outhouse. It's like, this isn't going to work. And the reason I knew that is when I was, when I was in my twenties, I used, and even thirties, I would uh, find an unbelievable scrape during the hunting season. And I'd always carry a Ziploc with me. And in my backpack, and I always had a little tiny snowmobile shovel or, it, you know, that's what they look like. Little tiny shovel mm-hmm. you can pull up. And I would dig the dirt out of scrapes that literally had been pissed in for a month. And I would transfer that dirt to other scrapes 10, 20, 30 miles away. And you wouldn't believe what that would do to those bucks. They'd, want, they'd start checking that scrape more because they wanted to know who all the new deer were there. That's That's a good move. <laughs> yeah. So when the synthetics came along, you know, I didn't have to pack dirt anymore. 
Right. I didn't have to do all that stuff. And the synthetics, I could just pack a bottle, dribble it in or build. I, and when I talk about building these scrapes, I've evolved with that quite a ways too, to where I make them look like to a buck when he first finds it, when I build a mock scrape to get closer to him, to get him to be even closer to me. And I want to get him more frequent on my camera in the daylight. I build it in a fashion that mimics one that's been there for decades. So when he sees it, and I've got lots of video evidence of this, the first time those big deer walk in that are five, six, seven, eight years old, and they see that scrape, I swear they act like they can't believe they didn't know it was there. Really? Like, how in the hell did I miss this yeah. in my own turn? <laughs> and then they really start covering it. They just take it over. So, so it's not like, so I don't have to be there every day. They take it over. So when, when you're doing that, when you're building those scrapes, then are you, I mean, are you looking for a location that's got a certain type of tree and it's got, you know, a few branches that are just right and then putting it under those so they can have the licking branch and the ground all tore up or when I, yeah, that's, that's a really, that's a good question. What I do is whatever region and I say region because I'm pretty much in three states up here. Whatever I see, I pay close attention to what the deer in that drainage, in that area, that state, what they prefer on their community scrapes for plant species. You follow me? Yeah. I harvest whatever they like the best in those specific areas. And in different areas, it's a different species of timber or, you know, like a, like a uh, alder. And I'll harvest that. I'll harvest a, one that looks that really can have the right look. And I'll take, you know, seven, eight, 10 feet off of it, off of an existing plant or the tree, and I'll move it, that big long stem with all the licking branches that I know I can build out of it, sculpt out of it, so to speak. And I'll strap it to the tree where I, I'll strap it to any tree to position the deer where I want them. So I'll strap it to the tree and then I build all the licking branches and I tear them up and I twist them and I tatter them. And of course I'm wearing rubber gloves. So it's a, it's a surgery. That's going to be wood. my next question. <laughs> it's a surgery. I mean, it is very precise, you know, I'm usually in my rubber boots and if not, I'm sprayed down with my, I wear those Hoffman boots that have the rubber bottoms and rubber sides on them anyway. So I'm really clean. I don't step in the scrape that I build. But anyway, I build that licking branch to look so authentic to that region, that area, that those deer expect to see those licking branches on that species of tree or that species of vine. Yeah. And then when I tear the dirt up, I just use a big stick. I'm not going to pack a rake three, four miles in the mountains. <laughs> so I just use a big stick and I dig it all out. And then I'll put four different flavors of my buck fever synthetic. I say flavors. That's just, you know, hypothetically speaking, four different types of our buck fever urine. So I'll place four different deer in that scrape already for those deer to smell. So there's four different profiles of scent in there. So what kind of profiles are you using then? What, what, uh, like a rutting buck dominant yeah. something? What? Yeah. We've, got, we've got a rutting buck. We've got an estrus doe. We have a pre-post low testosterone early season buck urine in a regular rut. And what I like about it is when a scrape is existing and been there for years, the whitetails can leave it for three or four months in the winter and come back to it. They're still 
residual urine scent in that dirt that they can smell. You and I could never smell it. They can. So when I build these community scrapes, I dig them pretty deep. Like I'd rough the dirt up probably two to four inches deep. And I get that urine down in that dirt and I let some dirt be on top. And they'll come in and find these, like I'm building these scrapes from April on. And all my video evidence shows when they find them, they literally treat them like this is a huge scrape that I had no idea was here. And there's already four deer in it or five deer in it. Then they just take them over. They hit the licking branch that I built for them. And when I say licking branch, it's multiple, seven, eight, nine, ten licking branches. I make them look authentic to my region. And then they'll even, this is, it's, it's amazing, but we got video of them urinating in them right now. Now they're not ready. It's funny though. We'll get a young buck or a young goat to urinate in them even right now. Usually the big bucks will just come in and use, work the licking branch this time of year. So when you say right now, I, I think you, you actually posted something, uh, a video of you building one recently. And yeah. uh, so you're saying like referring to that, that you've got them already in that. And they're, I've got. I got a big buck I hunted last year and I didn't kill him. Guess who was the first deer back after his migration to my scrape on April 17th? Guess who was the first deer <laughs> back to my scrape? That's cool. <laughs> I mean, he's got bases that are so big and he's got a big, he's got a big uh, kind of a gash that's healed on his side. So he's a dead giveaway. That's him. That's how I can tell it's him. And I can see his big shoulders, but he's real skinny, obviously in April. But he's already back in there. And and I see that over and over every year. You know, whitetails are very conditioned animals. And they, we haven't even talked about the forehead scent yet. No. But they, no. <laughs> they, they live, they live every day by their nose and stimulus response to what they smell. 100%. Eyes, ears are second and third. So like the, country. I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Go I ahead. was going to say the, like the pre-orbital do you do you think they're uh, using that more of a, as a reference point kind of early in the yeah. spring when they're coming up to a lot of these, these it's actually these the four, it's, yeah it's actually the forehead gland more than the preorbital okay um that forehead gland they really put that on the licking branch here around and you know they they here's another thing i see and i don't ever see many people talk about it or write about it um but i see it all the time with my bucks they literally put their saliva all over the licking branches out here they almost they don't spit on them i'm not going to get goofy on anybody here <laughs> but they leave a lot of saliva on those licking branches they'll they'll literally stick that licking branch in the sides of their mouth and of course rub their forehead all over it and i've got videos i you know i got oodles of videos i don't I don't publicize it, but I, I have a little YouTube page that I'm not trying to do anything big with it for other than for people that maybe hear a podcast or talk to me personally about whitetails. Mm -hmm. My name, Troy Pottinger. Just go look at my YouTube page and look at some of the videos from April till January of my scrapes. And we're not talking just about little bucks. We're talking about the biggest bucks in the, in the mountains that I'm hunting. Old. When I say big, I mean mature, big, old, and you know, usually they carry pretty good headgear that goes along with it. So let's let's talk about that real quick then as far as age. Uh, and then I kind of want to circle back to the scents real quick. But um, what, what are you talking when you're talking age? Because I know you've had your deer actually aged, uh, you know, scientifically. There, there's been 
deer that you've had, uh, like how big or how old? Um, my bigger bucks always get them aged and the oldest one I've ever killed is 11. That's, yeah. That's Idaho, a- you can send off all your jaws or take them to a local biologist and they'll age them for you. Plus, I, like I said, I, I do have that background and I do understand it. And I probably spend more time with whitetails than any of these biologists that age them, you know, <laughs> but so I'm usually within a year, but when they get so old that their teeth are below their gums, that's when I send them in. Yeah. Most, you know, everything I'm looking for now in the, in the mountains, because they don't even reach skeletal maturity until they're five. That's insane. That's yeah. So I'm looking for that. I'm looking for that skull plate that's fully developed so that it can give total bone growth in a growing year to the antler and not the body. Yeah. So So I really like that five-year-old age and older. That's Wow. To me, that's crazy. I mean, cause most of the time around here, you're, you're most people are shooting it, you know, a three-year-old, maybe a four or five, or at least so we think, how often have you been, uh, and how do you, how do you know when you're taking these pictures then? I mean, how certain are you? And most of the time you're right. I mean, have you ever been duped on a deer where you're like, Oh, wow. I didn't think he was only three. Okay. Uh, you're asking if, if I think a deer is too young or too old, if I get duped too young or too old. Yeah. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. I'm asking that. And then, I mean, how, how did, are you, or normally are you pretty, pretty dead on? I'm usually dead on. And if this is why all whitetail bucks disperse at one and a half, their mamas kick them off. We don't want any inbreeding. They tell them and get out of here. Right. Yeah. So when I, when I run my cameras on my scrapes, my two and a half year olds roll in new ones. And I literally watch bucks go from two and a half, three and a half, four and a half. And then I hunt them at five and a half. So I got a pretty damn good idea how old they are because they've lived on my scrapes for four years. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, that's a, a long-term investment there for sure. (laughs) It it is. I, I, you know, I, I've got a buddy that's actually bear hunting right now out in one of my tree stands. And like he said to me the other day, he didn't really understood until, you know, we've been hanging out about six months and we're just talking and like, I really thought I understood whitetails, Troy, but I didn't realize how, how in depth, you know, your study of these deer is not just hunting them. And it's, to me, it's, that's the most intriguing part to me. Now that we have trail cameras is that's why I run my videos so long and year round and run the best batteries and best cameras I can find that can make it through a winter the biggest SD cards because that video evidence tells you 10 times more intel about a certain buck's behavior, a doe's behavior, what kind of personality they got, everything, which helps me hunt them smarter. Yeah. So I run all that video versus pictures. Now, I always have a camera at every setup. I always have a camera on picture, a camera on video. And then because I'm on public land, I usually hide one 20 feet up at an angle down over all of it just to catch you stealing them. (laughs) Oh yeah. You know, you got guys that don't want to learn it. Don't want to do the work. Don't want to put in the effort, but they want to hunt next to you. If they see your truck in the mountain or everybody wants a free handout, you know? Yeah. So when, I mean, is it pretty commonplace then that you have a lot of other people, you know, strolling through the same areas or is it, uh, Uh, I try to get away from people all the time and I try to be pretty discreet. I do not like to hunt. I don't ever, I, 
if I know that somebody's hunting a spot or an area, I get the hell away from him. I let him have it, you know. Uh, it's been actually pretty good overall out here in this country. We're getting a little more crowded. I think the biggest issue I run into is all these guys that wait till the last week before season, then they all go out and set their stuff up, and they have no clue who's in the woods or where guys are. <laughs> so do you guys get to leave your 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 stands and stuff up then? We on on different. It depends on what I'm on. If I'm on public forest service land, you got to pull them. If you're on timber company ground, you might be able to leave it a little longer. And it all depends. We have BLM. We have oh, I hunt some reservation ground. I mean, I hunt four or five different, basically public land accessible grounds. So they all have different rules. Gotcha. Yep. So let's circle back to the to the synthetics then, uh, and and talk about. We were talking about the forehead gland, and so I mean, do they do they make a synthetic like a forehead gland? How do how do you establish that? Yeah, you'll have to when you're done with this podcast. Anybody that listens will probably at least look at it. Buck Fever Synthetics USA. Uh, it's a mimic of their forehead gland, and it basically leaves a scent profile of another deer. So I'm just everywhere I go, I'm introducing a different profile of a of a forehead of a buck, and then I'm introducing three or four different urines to a scrape on purpose, so that when the stud buck that I have on camera in the area rolls in and checks it, he instantly is like, "Who in the hell are these guys, and where are they?" Then once they get used to my scent in there and they're always over marking to come and run into me someday, they just keep looking for me and they never see me in the daylight unless an arrow goes through their heart. Right. <laughs> and that's just, it's that simple. It's no different when you let your dog out of the back of your truck or I shouldn't say back. My dog never rides in the back. He rides with <laughs> but, but when you let your dog out of your truck and he runs out on some new property, what's the first thing he goes and finds? Son. Or another dog. Yeah. Goes. And what's he do? marks it yeah he marked it and and that's exactly what whitetails do and that's what elk do at wallows that's what moose do at their scrapes that's what mammals do that's what bear do that's what wolves do at their toilets it's what mammals do they overmark their areas and they let every other animal in that area know that hey this is me this is who i am you know and if you look at the biology of a white-tailed deer Deer can differentiate based on how well a buck or a doe metabolizes protein. They can differentiate who's the healthiest and best genetics in the area just by scent. That's interesting. Yeah. And so, that's, that's why the biology <laughs> fascinates me so much. So, I mean, when you're making a synthetic, if you want, you want a dominant, then you, you want to I mix it, it up. Way. Yeah. Yeah. The pre, the pre post that I use, the preseason stuff. It's kind of like, in my opinion, I get results like you would get from a two or three year old buck. And I like that because you also, everybody, will, you know, you, anybody will tell you this. Some of the biggest antler bucks in the woods aren't always the toughest. Yeah. Some of them are fighters and some aren't. You can get them to come yeah. in. If, yeah. I, I always tell guys, if the biggest buck in the woods that I want to kill is a brute and a bully, he's in trouble. <laughs> because he's going to behave like a bully and get himself killed. Yeah, absolutely. The hardest ones to kill are the ones that are low testosterone bucks that are secretive and don't breed much. Yeah. Unless, unless you're killing them in on a feed pattern. That's a whole different story though. <laughs> yeah. But the cool thing about a scrape is the licking branch 
can always be a part of even their feeding routine. They'll still let deer know that they're part of the community. So when you're, when you're putting on that, uh, when you're putting on the synthetic, how heavy are you going? I mean, like a whole bottle, what, what's the, what's the strategy behind that? We, we have four and eight ounce bottles and I'm not a salesman. I'm a deer hunter, <laughs> we have. but to, you're asking that specific question. That is a good question. Cause all the guys that buy product from me and, and I do have a big shipment every year, buck fever really takes great care of me and I promote the hell out of their product. So I do have a lot of it. Um, to answer your question, this is again, pretty simple common sense. When you think about it, if I'm going to build a brand new mock scrape, it needs to smell like it's had a lot of deer in it for years. So I use more urine, more scent. When I overmark an existing scrape that's already got 10, 12, 15 deer in the drainage that know where it's at, I just touch it up. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of where I was trying to trying to get because, you know, I, I think, I mean, can you overmark up? Do you think you could overmark up? one where they're like man that doesn't seem right how many deer have been there or, or just too strong yeah i yeah i think you know i'm realistic i watch deer piss and scrapes all the time what do they drop two or three ounces maybe four yeah so hey i'm probably not gonna put in a scrape that's already been there for decades you know a big i call them community hubs i'm probably only gonna drop two ounces three ounces is all i need to do and you know, I'm doing things with bottles and other types of bottles that mist it and really lay it out. And I get more out, more mileage out of my bottle of scent. Cause Hey, we're all, you know, I'm not rich. It's not like I am going to spend $2,000 a year on this stuff. <laughs> you know? and, and nobody, and, and yeah. nobody out there wants to hear that either, that I got to go buy 10 gallons of it, but you buy a couple gallons of this stuff for the season. You're going to be impressed with what it does as long as you keep your human scent out of it. That's how you'll ruin an awesome scrape. Touch it with your, touch a licking branch with your bare hands. And I'm referring to my deer. I know there's more tolerant deer in the country that would tolerate it. I know there's deer that live around humans all the time in the Midwest. And they might, I don't know, but I do know they're used to people being around. My deer are the deer that you're not used to having somebody in your bedroom with you, right? Yeah. <laughs> but if you're downtown, you don't give a shit. The deer that I hunt are those deer that are so f far removed from humans that they get enough of humans to know that if they even hear a pickup come in the drainage two, three miles away, that it's on. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty skittish. And it's because we're moving into the habitat that they're, they don't normally smell us in it. They normally smell mountain lions, wolves, coyotes, bears, grizzly and black, lynx. That's the shit they're dodging every day. Then a, then a human rolls in and they know the human's only here for one reason to hunt me because that's why they come, you know, for the most part, you know, the places I'm hunting. So my point about that licking branch and those scrapes is the last thing I ever want to do as a trapper, as a hunter is get my human scent in that dirt scrape part or the licking branch above. So let's talk about that then. What it, how are, I mean, other than like your rubber gloves and stuff like that and your boots, what are you doing for scent control, uh, entering and exiting your hunt area and things like right. that? Are you, I mean, are you picking a separate route to go in to, yeah, to my, hunt? Yeah. Exit and entrance for me is paramount. 
whether I'm sitting in a stand or going to go check a camera. Um, I'll base my visits to my, I have certain hours. I'll check my cameras in the summer. Once the hunting season starts, I never check a camera unless I'm hunting the spot. And if I walk into a spot in the hunting season and it just doesn't look like it's producing much, I will pull a card and look at it. Um, but I'm a once a month guy rule at all my cameras pretty much year round, unless I'm hunting that deer at that spot. Then I check it if I hunt it. So your, your time of the day, does that have something to do with the thermals? Is that what you're playing yeah, around? I'm totally walking into a camera based on that day's wind, prevailing wind and how it's going to mix with the thermals. So one day that I go check that camera, say in May, I may be walking in a totally different route than I would walk in if I'm going to check it in a month later because I have a different wind. Uh, one of the things I love to do is I check my shit on rainy days when it's pouring. <laughs> I'm the only guy in the woods, nobody's seeing my truck, and I'm checking stuff when it's pouring the rain in full plastic rain gear, rubber boots, and rubber gloves. Yeah, I've noticed that. There's not a whole lot of people that spend all day out there in the rain. Not in the rain, and not in the mountains, because you'll have trees blown down. You'll have to, you, you, the places I go check deer on, you might drive back and have to cut 20 trees out of the road. <laughs> Luckily, you're a logger, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and that's where it's fun for me. That's the kind of stuff I like, and a lot of times I'll stay in the woods for two or three days in my truck. And I use, you did ask me what I spray down with. I use Vanishing Hunter from Buck Favor Synthetics for over 20 years. It's incredible. I tell people this at every seminar. It's the only scent, and I'll, I won't ever say eliminating, because you can't get rid of all your scent. But you can minimize it to a point to where an animal thinks you're further away or were there two or three days before. You know, they all deer have to differentiate the level of molecules of scent that they're processing at that moment. It's like you and I, we walk through the woods and a skunk's 20 yards from us and we pick up that heavy dose of scent cone molecules. That scent cone's full of molecules. We jump back, we get the hell away. You and I walk through the same part of the woods 10 days later and barely pick up a scent from that skunk. Are we going to spook? Are we going to be worried? No, because we know that skunk's not close. Right. That's how deer, that's how deer process us. So I try to minimize, I try to minimize my scent molecular profile, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Let's talk about yeah. then. I mean, so if you're staying in your truck for three days, camping out, right. What do you, I mean, you're not going to be like an elk hunter and just be living in those clothes. No, I hang all my, you know, it's fun. <laughs> somebody ever finds me, they're going to see clothes hanging out. In <laughs> they're going to see me in a, I bring two or three sets of clothes, you know, a couple set, I have my pickup slippers. I've got my, my truck is a four door. So I just sleep in the back of it because I like to stay mobile and I don't even want to pack. I can't even pull a camper or haul a camper in where I want to. If I did, I'd tear stuff up. So yeah. And, and you stick out like a sore thumb and there's always trees hanging over the roads and stuff. So you'd be, you'd be a nightmare. So yes, I usually always will camp somewhere right by a Creek a running Creek or water source. And you know, I grew up logging in the mountains where you took a bath in the damn Creek. If you needed to, I stay really clean and I'm a clean freak. So after a hard day of hiking and laying out all kinds of sets and hanging tree stands, I come back and, doesn't bother me to strip down to, you know, strip down and get completely cold bathed off and get clean and 
and jump in my truck clean as can be in my pajamas and well, sweats, <laughs> yeah. you know, and sleep. And then, the, then my clothes, I hang out all my work clothes outside. I hang them out all night unless it's pouring the rain, you know, and I even carry a little tarp with me when I need to hang out my clothes if it is raining because I don't want them stinking like sweat or, you know, anything that's real human. Are, are you doing that during hunting season then too? Always. Yep. I'm a clean freak and extra clothes. I even carry extra underwear, uh, undergarments on my long walks to a tree stand. Some of my walks, I'd say my longest walks are two miles. Um, and it's not flat ground. So it's two good miles of steep usually and up and down and around and well, maybe on an old logging road or something, but still it's a long walk. Usually when, and my boy does all this with me too. My son Tyson's a hell of a whitetail hunter because he's been doing it with me since he was five or six, seven. You know, I started him filming for me before he could even hunt. He killed his first <laughs> buck. He killed his first buck when he was nine. Uh, he's killed two hogs. He's 16 years old right now, and he's killed two of the biggest public land bucks I've ever seen killed in the West. You know, nice. for a teenager, for That's a teenager, awesome. with a bow. On, I mean, two of the biggest I've ever seen. I think. The one, if we enter it, I think it will be the state record. We just got to get it entered. Do you but think, anyway. <laughs> you think there's no, going to be I'm some serious. healthy competition there? Well, my my son, is he loves it. And, you know, I've heard the rumors, oh, he just kills big bucks because of his dad. No. This kid is a 4.25 student, hardcore football player, really smart kid, but is very driven. So all that to say He's at the point now at 16, he's going to be 17 in a couple of weeks, going to be a senior. He's at the point now where he goes one way and I go the other, but we do our scouting together. But anyway, all back to the, what <laughs> yeah. we were talking about. Yeah. Sorry. We, yeah, I'm sorry too. Um, back to what we're talking about. No, we'll get, we'll get two to 300 yards, 400 yards from the stand, whatever the wind's doing. I base it on that. I don't like to get too close. We'll strip down to our skivvy spray down with buck fever and put on completely new dry, perfectly nice, warm undergarments, then throw our outer garments back on. We'll go through that. We'll go through that process and we'll do it at five, 10, 12, 15 degrees. We don't care. Even if it's snowing, it doesn't matter. We do it because when we get to our stand, we're dry. We can sit all day during those rut hunts. And usually it's cold like that during the rut, the late season, but it's worth it. It's worth the half hour of work versus walking out that far and just ruining a great spot because you're sweating like a horse. And like I said, you can't completely minimize scent. You can't. But boy, if you knock it down, you'll get deer to forgive and think you're were there two or three days earlier. And I've seen it over and over through my years. I've watched them barely pick a little bit of me up and not much and work right through and i'll kill him so what's your take then i'm kind of curious uh, been hearing a lot of good things and uh you know there's kind of some science behind it as far as the ozone and guys hunting and using ozone what have... i tested it i tested it out here and what do you think i sold it yeah you didn't like it and this is why i'm not a ground blind hunter i can't hold the ozone where it needs to be I also tested it out here and my bucks could hear the motor running on quiet days. Okay. So I got rid of it, but I'm not going to bash it because I think, 
I think in a setting to where you can contain that ozone like a like a ground blind, maybe even some states where the wind I get a lot of wind bursts and wind gusts and then dead and then wind gusts because I'm in the mountains. I get thermals, thermal currents all day or two to three miles an hour usually. Sometimes they're even more. It's incredible out here when stuff heats up and cools down. But I I didn't I didn't find it productive enough for me to you know, say, okay, I'll carry that in. And it made too much noise for my deer. My deer could hear it on quiet days and they didn't, they, they'd, they'd hear it 50 yards away and leave. So what about like, uh, say you're going to Oklahoma or, or something right. like that, you, you right. think maybe application there? You know, I think, uh, I think farm country, you bet. I, I, I would try it. I only tested it in the mountains out here and and had a real good friend that's a ground blind hunter in Satroy. If you end up not liking it, I'll take it. And I said, I just don't think it's worth it to me to pack it two, three miles into the mountains. So he bought it from me and he's using it. He likes it in his ground blind out here, yeah. but he's hunting, he's hunting farm fields and just back in the timber off farm fields. And he loves the fact that he's in that ground blind. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. I, I don't think that, you know, I don't have a, I don't have a, I don't, I think it does help in some situations. I know the boys up in Canada and Canadian whitetail use the heck out of them. Yeah, but that's... I also know I also know those deer walk out in the wide open too. In, in <laughs> yeah. a wide open day. They don't even know that there's existence of humans. <laughs> some of them. No, and and this, you know, I'm not I'm not knocking anybody. Wherever I go, I'm going to play the cards that that country deals you. You yeah. know, and I'm cool with that. I. I can't wait to go to Southern Ohio this year with my buddy, Mike Griner off of white addictions, because I'm down in some rolling Hills down there, heavy cover at canopy. And it's pretty freaking awesome country. And there's thermals and there's wind. And it's just like my setting out here, but on a smaller elevation scale. So are you playing at the same then? Like, so let's say you travel somewhere. Are you, are you, that's a good question. I like this one. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's yeah. get into that then. I play it the same everywhere and I get looks. My buddy in Oklahoma makes fun of me, but tell him where I want to put a stand versus where he wants me to sit a little bit and go ahead, do what you want. And, you know, two hours later, I kill a 185. So he didn't argue with me after that. <laughs> <laughs> but, and that, that's not how it's going to work all the time. Don't get me wrong. But I, I, yes, I, when I everywhere I've ever went, I think for myself and I use what I've learned from these deer out here to apply to deer everywhere. And I, this is what I found. My deer are so skittish that almost everything I use everywhere else, even I build my scrapes and I got footage of it. They even like the scrapes I build everywhere I go. Yeah. So, so let's, let's talk about that then. So when you're looking, say you're looking at whatever, whatever map app you have or whatever, and you're yeah. looking at it and you're going to be out of state. Right. You're picking certain terrain features that you've got an idea that there's probably like a big community scrape or some type of activity like that. Yes. In that I'm, area then. Yeah. I'm looking number one for big security cover. Okay. I'm, lo I'm looking for where deer, in my opinion, based on not just the topo, not just you know, I'm not just the satellite imagery. I want to, I want to find, and I ask questions to the guys that are hunting that country. Where do the deer like to bed? What kind of species of hardwoods do they like? You know, and I, 
those guys are sharp, man. They hunt those heart, they hunt those acorns and all that. I'm one of those guys that likes to dive into the timber and be deep in. I, I can't hardly sit on a field edge. I just can't do it. Now <laughs> I know it gets done and I know it works when deer are not pressured. I know that it works. Yeah. I, I'm just so ingrained to get into the dance security, security cover that that's just what I love to do. And I have seen, well, I've seen the two biggest bucks of my life out of state and I killed one of them. And the other one I had at eight yards. And because my buddy who the land donor wanted to kill so bad, I could tell he wanted to kill him. He hadn't seen him for two months. He said, I said, what if I see your giant buck that's in the one nineties? He killed, he says, kill him. <laughs> well, I, the first time he let me dive into where I wanted to hunt, I hung a stand. I had that deer at eight yards under me in two hours, three hours. And I had another nice deer under me at the same time. I called them both in with a snort wheeze. And it was because I got into where that buck had been hiding. And this is a, on my father's grave truth. I did not shoot that deer at eight yards broadside. I picked the other one because I knew how much my buddy wanted to kill that big deer. And it was on his property. Did you? Even though he, <laughs> he told me to kill him. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't do it. I shot the other buck. It ended up grossing almost 150, and it was a nice four by four, and it was about a 150. So it was a damn nice buck. I called them both in together. After I kill my buck, he goes over and falls over. The big buck, the giant, stays with me for 20 minutes, putting his antlers in the side of my buck, trying to get him up. <laughs> Did you take a picture of it and send it to your buddy at least to rub it in a little no, bit that this, you got this, on him? No, 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 no. This was back with uh, flip phone days. Oh. I didn't even, I didn't even, I didn't even run a camera or nothing back then. And, you know, I come back to Idaho and I tell my brother and his story and they're all just telling my son, you're an idiot, dad. And my brother's like, you're, you're, you're a better man than me. And I said, well, you know, <laughs> Here's the bottom line. That guy's inviting me out to his place. He might not get that invite back if he would have done it. He was <laughs> exactly what I told him. And guess what? I went back to Iowa a couple times to his place because of it, I believe. And Jay killed the buck later in muzzleload season, late Iowa season. And it grossed 192. Nice. Nice. Yeah. So it was, yeah. for me, people that hear this, for me, it was the right thing to do. And I, and I knew how much. And Jay's a lot younger than me. And I knew he wanted that deer, even though he told me to kill it. But I love that guy. So I was like, no, it's not all about just killing the biggest deer. <laughs> oh, yeah. I try. I totally understand that one. I get it. A lot yeah, of people it, probably wouldn't, but I get it. But but the cool thing was I got on that deer the first time I dove in. That's awesome. Yeah. And that was that that to me was a win. I dove in, had him in my lap. My buddy told me he hadn't seen him in almost two months, I think it was. You know, as far as from a stand, had him on camera, of course. But anyway, yeah, that just, it was pretty cool. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It's a good point to wrap it up here. Um, it's truly awesome. I appreciate you coming on, talking to me, sharing your knowledge. Um, you want to tell people where they can get in touch with you or where they can find some of the products you're talking about, too? Please, yes. I, um, I do film and hunt for whitetail addictions TV, uh, which is Andre DeQuisto, Lone Wolf Custom Gears, big production. It's, hey, we're back. We have our brand new series of shows. My son and I have an episode next week, and that is uh, that starts tomorrow, Thursday, on YouTube. Lone Wolf Custom Gear YouTube. You can watch all of our hunting shows. We got some 
awesome, cool dudes that hunt for lone wolf custom gear and whitetail addictions. That's tomorrow on YouTube. And we have a brand new show every week, all summer into the fall. Nice. So, so we got, and then I'm a lone wolf custom gear guy. I've been hunting out of Andre DeQuisto stuff for 20 plus years. Uh, all the lone wolf stuff, lone wolf custom gear. You can find them at lone wolf custom gear on uh, Instagram or on Facebook or wherever you want to go. And then, uh, Whitetail Addictions TV and BuckFeverUSA.com if you want to get into those synthetic scrapes. And the cool thing about the synthetics that we didn't talk about, never rots, never gets old, never spoils on the shelf. Yeah, I meant to get into that. I didn't. But, yeah, yeah, the proteins are breaking down. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, it's just incredible what those people that I just talked about, what they've done for me. I mean, they have really – taken my son and I in for the last five or six years as a family member, not just a, you know, one of their pro staff. And I think they really like what we do out West. And I love being a part of that team of great guys, uh, Justin Hollinsworth, Andre, Cody DeQuisto, Heath Cisco, all my buddies, Mike Grenier, Steve Pinkston. It's just, and there's, there's more. Our, our staff is just full of really cool guys that are hardcore whitetailers. You can learn a lot from any of those dudes. I mean, they're excellent and they're the Midwest guys. I'm kind of the guy way out here in the Northwest that represents this end of the country. And then my Instagram is, is uh, mountain underscore man, 33 mountain man, 33. And it's because, of, you know, they, they kind of tagged me with that years ago because I'm a mountain whitetail hunter. So that's where that comes from. That's awesome. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much, man. Hey, hey Luke, I appreciate it. And that was a great talk. Maybe we'll talk again. Absolutely. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. wild game in wild places tune in to hunt stand presents saturdays at 8 30 p.m eastern waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment through the blackwater bayous and in the dark louisiana night floats a duck camp alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of cajun cooking Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest. Me and the Duck Camp Dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinner. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.